0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Keenan Duffy who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Um, a musician who's been in lots of bands since the late 70s, 80s, but also into the world of fashion and design, as you will find out on this uh, interview. Or chat, really, depending on which way you look at it. But has got a new album out, because <clears throat> he's part of a band, or he is the band, called Slinky Vagabond. And um, it is something of a supergroup, because he's the driving and force behind it. But the band also features um, El Slick, Glenn Matlock, Clem Burke, and also Pete Shelley on backing vocals. As well as lots of guest musicians as well. Uh, Mitcher, uh, Martin Turner from Wishbone Ash, David Torn. It's a bit of a groovy one. And the album is available from all good sites. Available vinyl and compact disc. And uh, if you Google away, Slinky Vagabond, King Boy Vandals. You will find out more information, but hopefully you'll find out more during this interview, as I probably said already. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Take it away.
1: I did. I did yeah, there were a couple of moments. Like I loved all of that kind of bubblegum glam. Um, I didn't really, but Bowie for me was part of that. Um, so, you know, when Sweet did Blockbuster and Bowie did Gene Genie, I didn't realise that both of them were kind of coming from, you know, the Manish, Manish Boy and via, um, you know, the Birds or whatever. I thought it was their their riff, you know, that to, these two acts had come up with this riff at the same time. So I was listening to Slade, to Sweet, especially Sweet. I really love Sweet. Um, Mark Boland, I really love Mark Bolan. And it wasn't until really... Uh, 1975, I think it was when Space Odyssey was re-released. And then I kind of really un- started to understand Bowie yes. and actually understand the, the transition that he was making at that moment, you know, from being a kind of gl- glam rock act into Young American's Plastic Soul and then ultimately going into Station to Station. But that was kind of my epiphanal moment with Bowie. But also before that, it was like the Who's Tommy, you know, like going to the movie theater and seeing that. So it was still a little bit young to go to see live bands. And I, I loved that. And I loved Slade's movie Flame as well. So they were kind of real moments. Um, but, you know, in, in my school, we, our playground was sort of, you know, there was the, the demarcation was, you know, Northern Soul Kids on one side and kind of kids that were into what we would consider glam rock on the other side and then there was sort of an amalgamation in the middle of kids that eventually understood bowie through the soul thing right um, you know so that it kind of came together and, and bowie was the the catalyst i think of that um you know bringing sort of d- different sides together even though we were all part of the same gang really yeah so where about so yeah. where did you grow up by the way i grew, I grew up in doncaster right. and um yeah so um, I grew up in a town, in, in a village outside Doncaster. It was like two thousand people, and Doncaster is kind of a market town with, without that much. There's a couple of. There's like one live music venue. Um, the Gorman actually, the, the movie, the movie theater was Bowie played there a couple of times in the early seventies. But I was sort of too young to go and see him. Um, but his dad was from Doncaster, That's so right. th- there's kind of like this weird thing when I eventually met David. He, he said to me, "Where are you from?" I said, "Doncaster." And he said, "Oh, we know all about Doncaster," and there was kind of that weird, you know, affinity with with Yorkshire actually as well because of the spiders coming from Hull and, you know. So it was, but yeah, that they were my musical epiphanies were probably those those movies and then the singles that that were kind of you know just sort of like really turned you on, you know, like wow, this is a great sound, Rider White Swan and Metal Guru and things like that, and then eventually. Actually, understanding Bowie and the the, the heritage and the legacy, um, you know, and the the kind of intersection of Lou Reed and, and Iggy, and and then eventually New York Dolls, and that that was that was what sort of led me in, into understanding and digging music in a deeper way. Um, and then yes. punk rock, you know, it was punk. I know rock it
0: was. It was a, of... <laughs> I know Bowie gave us so much, didn't he? He just yeah. It was kind of an education, really. Yeah, did you so, come from a sort of uh, a, an artistic family at all or, or sort of did your, um, par- were your parents at all kind of artistic or musical?
1: Yeah, they, they, they are. Um, they came from, uh, um, you know, my, my dad came from a family of 11 and grew up in a two up, two down, you know, coal mining uh, house that was kind of owned by the coal miner. All, he he was, went down the coal mine when he was 14. Brilliant. Um mum works in the explosives factory for the, the coal mine, which they called the powder works, which sounds kind of quite nice, but actually it was not, not nice at all. Um, but both of them are very artistic. Uh, they they didn't go to art school or anything or really I think really study art, but my mum plays piano. Both of them eventually became hairdressers. So I kind of grew up in this world of hair. And um and they are both, you know, my dad um as as like you know built buildings and you know design plans for buildings and so on and he's he paints today he's like you know paints in in oils my mum's super creative and has always had kind of creative outputs but they're not trained traditionally um it's just their their creative pursuit so they always encouraged me as a kid to you know to paint and draw and make stuff and and they uh until i was had really shitty uh exam results in school and then they were like okay you know like (laughs) focus on math a bit more <laughs> yes god that's Get a bit of, more but, serious <laughs> well that's
0: interesting because because I come from the sort of countryside of sort of East Anglia and um and it was kind of you know it was a very working class you know background so you know one's parents I mean, there wasn't that much money about. And I mean, we had to make our own entertainment. But, you know, they were the generation that when they got married, I think they just sort of sold everything. They never owned, you know, they never borrowed money for anything. You know, they just, they used to sort of work hard, save a bit of money, you know, and they kept within their budget, really. So when I grew up, I mean, they had sold you know things like the record player and the records, and we had a black and white telly. But you know, it was kind of the early '70s when, and I had an older brother who, you know, when the record player appeared, he he was into prog rock. He was seven years older, and so he had these kind of like amazing albums like Wishbone Ash and Yes and Genesis right. and and um, you know, which I thought were fantastic. Even the solo work of Rick Wakeman, I loved. And then he also had you know Black Sabbath and Deep Purple, and I thought, oh, this is great. So for sort of a lot of the seventies, you know, there was this going on, and also I kind of worshipped him. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And but it was kind of the eighties that things started to change. But then there was this kind of David Bowie with you know like the first album with Changes One, and it was like, God, this is this is extraordinary. But then at the same time, he did have the solo work of um, the uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, and he also owned. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Sgt Pepper and that was kind brilliant. of you know the kind of early mid 70s so it was it was kind of interesting hearing those records and being absolutely obsessed with them which then obviously years later you you kind of ignore and then decades later you think god they're brilliant i love those records <laughs> so much so then when you got to 16 this was 1980 i guess wasn't it yeah yeah and then did you leave school at that age or did you stay for a levels
1: i stayed i stayed for a levels um I uh, was sort of, fig- I figured out that I wanted to go to art school and um, I figured that out because in the-, in the Sunday supplement, in the Sunday Times, I would always see in the back of the newspaper, there would be some fabulous party going on in London. And there's a, there'd be a picture of some amazingly dressed young people. And, it, and in brackets, it would say students at St. Martin's. And I thought, oh, they, they're having a much better time than I am. I'm going to go there. <laughs> and so the only route to that was really to stay on and do A-levels. And, um, and, and so that's what I did. You know? And I, 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 I got a place at St. Martin's. I didn't do a foundation course. I got in, into St. Martin's without doing a foundation course. So in 1982, I moved to London. And um, you know, kind of missing the Blitz, but um, but right in the thick of the whole kind of club scene, and you know, the the every week there was a new trend. I mean, the eighties, certainly the first part up until probably eighty six, it seemed to be some new trend in the face or ID or Blitz or whatever. You know, every week it was like you know, one, one week you were dressing up, then the next week you were dressing down in Rip Levi's and, you know, it was make-up and then it was, you know. Well,
0: it, yes, yeah. absolutely. And our, our dear friend Dylan Jones is always talking about the 80s. I think yeah. he makes it quite simplistic, really, because what I've known doing this so the C86 show, is that there were the, you know, because I was a real indie kid of the 80s, right. so it was kind of like, you know, 83 was probably the, the moment it all changed. Sure. But then, you know, there was this whole scene of New Paisley and there was the goth scene yes. and there was the back, club and then there's also um i've got the book here which you probably went to this club being fabulously connected but um alice in wonderland as well
1: i don't know that actually i don't know that where right. was that
0: alice in wonderland christian paris obviously wow um yeah yes there was a whole scene by
1: and the dj was doctor the bloke from doctor in the doctor, and the Ma- doctor and the yeah i remember I, re- I actually remember that scene and i remember he DJed somewhere but i didn't know that the, the name of the venue
0: Yes, there was a whole scene. So when, when did you first, because you got a band together, didn't you? A, a punk band in the late yeah. 70s. So this was yeah, your first school. This yeah. was your first moment of rock and roll. So when did, when did you actually, because this is
1: quite a major step in life, isn't it? To actually want to be in a band. Yeah, it was, I, I, I used to have a rally chopper. And uh, a friend of mine was very covetous of it. And he had a Woolworths guitar and a cheap amp. And so we did a swap. So he got the chopper and I got the guitar and the amp. And um, then my mates would come round and in our bedroom, one of our mates was like a little electronics buff and he made a kind of homemade, I wouldn't call it a synthesizer, but it sort of makes makes squeaks and squeals. And, uh, and then we had some biscuit tins and like, you know, the usual stuff. And we would just make a racket in my bedroom. And, and that progressed into the garage. And one of, the, one of the lads got a bass. Another one got a real drum kit. And, um, you know, we kind of put this band together. And then we just started doing gigs wherever we could, you know. And it, 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 we called it Sordid Details. I don't remember who came up with the name. And um, somebody said to me recently, oh, mm-hmm. did you get that from Ashes to Ashes? And I said, no, we didn't. Because we were, we were doing that a couple of years before Ashes to Ashes. Yes. It, was just like, it was kind of one of those phrases, I think, that was like in the air. You know, it was very kind of punk rock. Yes. Um, but David obviously, David Bowie obviously uh, had, had, you know, thought that was an interesting phrase to put into ashes to so, so there was synchronicity there as but well. But then
0: you formed Wonder Stories, a sort of so you yeah. embraced the new romantic kind of period of our of our eighties, didn't you, with great gusto? Because seventy nine I did. In, yeah. Thatcher being a sort of a major player in the 80s and the next, you know, shapes quite a lot, doesn't she? And then we had the Falkland crisis and then the Green and Common. There was the miners' Strike. There was Red Wedge, the SWP. Did you get kind of being, you know, I mean, it was hard not to be political, even in the countryside of East Anglia in the 80s. Did you get quite angsty in the 80s with the, um, yes.
1: I think, I think I was more interested in kind of sort of sexuality gender politics um i think i was more interested in 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 that than in uh things like red wedge i mean i i remember what really after punk there was kind of this lull and um out of that came there was this festival that was organized in, in leeds called the futurama festival oh yes and so i went to i went to both of those Um, Well, there have been several of them, but I went to the first two, 1979 and 1980, but I could only go on the first day because I didn't have anywhere to stay in Leeds, so I would take the train, go to the first day and then sleep in the train station and come back to Doncaster the next morning. And so I saw, um, I can't remember if it was, I think it was the first one, Public Image Played. But also on the bill were um, Joy Division, Certain Ratio, Punishment of Luxury, like loads of really good bands. And it seemed that that was the next thing after Punk, like there were more interesting things happening. And then the second Futurama Festival, Soft Cell played. And I'd I'd never heard of them. I didn't know anything about them. But they got up and one of the songs they did was a cover of Paranoid by Black Sabbath. So it was like a guy with a synth and a guy like, you know, with, with his cut off cap sleeve T-shirt, sort of singing Paranoid with a tape recorder going in the background. And I thought, this is genius. You know, it's like it sort of was like the band Suicide. Yes. But there, there was definitely a pop sensibility to it as well. So that was the kind of, you know, it was that. And then at one of those festivals, I actually ran into a friend of mine who's a few years older than me. And he told me he was gay. And that was, the, that was the first time I met someone who was out that I knew that was sort of of my, my generation, my peers. And it was kind of, you know, a very, um, a very sort of epiphanal moment for me because I was kind of interested in the androgyny of Bowie, obviously, but also the androgyny that was kind of coming out of that next wave of stuff that was happening in music. Yes. You know, there was kind of like a really interesting um interesting expression because like you know young kids wearing makeup and I would go I would wear makeup and go to school and like you know with the threat of getting my head kicked in <laughs> and winkle picker shoes and a floppy fringe and the whole thing um but eventually that became that sort of transitioned into new romantics and well, became totally. much more much more commercialized version of it I guess yeah. More codified version
0: Well, it's kind of, it it is kind of interesting because no one has a, you know, has an idea that, you know, the sun would have like one of those we know someone's someone in a prominent position is gay that and we're going to destroy them but we're going to leave we're going to let this kind of let them sort of have sleepless nights and sweat it out and then we're going to drop the bombshell and it's going to blow everything and you know the same with you know there was that and also oh my god there's a there's a black player playing for england football club you know can we cope with this can we have two black players i don't know that would be too much let's keep it to one and just throw bananas at them it was kind of weird you know because like bronce you know, was like, oh my god, you know, it's amazing, you know, it's like such a big thing. And now you just think, whatever, I'm just yeah, and yeah,
1: yeah, and and now, and there is a lot of whatever. I mean, we were mentioning about you know, players of color and things, and you know, with I mean, I was amazed in the last five years how out of the woodwork globally came this wave of um, you know, sort of right wing. Uh, uh, the, the right wing kind of rearing its head. I mean, you kind of felt that it probably was there, but it was sort of given almost permission to come out and turn, really try to turn the clock back. You know, and I, with what's going on in Texas at the moment, you know, with in, you know um, abortion rights and things. I mean, it's it's like unthinkable that that, that the U.S. could, you know, the, the, the Roe v.ersus Wade could actually be overturned. And you know a, a woman's right to do what they want to do with their body could be to turn the clock could be turned back to you know the 1950s i mean it's it's insane and, you know with 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 gender and with race and with all of these issues that we thought we were in you know getting to grips with in a in a, in a realistic and, and contemporary way uh and actually for them to become non-issues yes and, oh, it was such a total shock i mean i i I've, you know i found And it was great that the arts actually, um, you know, kind of tried to hold back the tide a little bit with with what happened with Donald Trump in America. You know, there was kind of a big um, resistance from the the art world in in, in a broader sense um, to that kind of right-wing extremism. Um, But yeah, it was kind of insane. It was almost like, you know, I I was thinking back to Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League and all of that 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 way that was happening in the 70s and you thought that was the start almost of a sort of post racial society um not that i mean I, I i'm not delusional i don't think that racism has went away because obama was the president not at all but you sort of thought we're we're in a 21st century society now and it was actually quite a shock to me to see the clock, the, the pendulum swing so far back the other way Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's
0: true. And I and I think what kind of one of those moments that happened, I think it was like, you know, there was a time when, you know, you could you you know you- you could be you could be racist and and slightly get away with it and then it was that moment like actually you kind of can't say it but obviously the person hasn't changed yeah it's just like well it's not cool and it's not yeah. and so you're going to have yeah. to just kind of stop that because and it's you know and it's like okay mate you know perhaps I will perhaps I can't you know perhaps I, and I think that, and for me one of those moments was when new labour got in thinking actually you can't kind of blame your life on kind of race anymore you can't blame you know other people if your life right. hasn't worked out how it was there was always this kind of strange blame thing and i think there was that kind of moment where you know things kind of had to stop but then obviously it's kind of been sitting on the surface and then you know the the kind of Trump came in and then Brexit kind of came back a bit yeah, and, yeah. And, and it was almost like yes we can say that now and right. then I like, well I don't know it's a bit it's not very nice it's like, oh my god now I'm being cancelled I can't say <laughs> like, what's sort of political little political correct has gone mad it's like I'm not sure it's just not very funny actually when you watch 70s humour and especially like Alf Garnet, you know, and sometimes you watch it, or Jim Davison in his classic period. You think, God, it's, it's not that funny, is it? It's not really. It's just kind of nasty. You're punching down, mate. You're punching down.
1: It's yeah, not- yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've got sort of obsessional about watching this retro TV channel here. So I watch like things like Police Woman and Streets of San Francisco and a show that wasn't big in England, I don't think. It's called Vegas. Um, but they're all kind of like mid to late 70s. And there's sort of casual racism and overt sexism <laughs> running through all of the shows. And, and, you know, there's there's overt homophobia as well um, running through all of these shows. And it was kind of... These were shows that weren't like Alf Garner or whatever. They weren't the extremist shows. They were sort of more mainstream on network television. But now you look at it and you think, well, my God, it's crazy that that was just out there in 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 you know for regular consumption in in mainstream entertainment and prime time television I mean yes. now you can look at it and you can look at it with a different viewpoint um, you know but it, it's and you can look at it obviously with you know having having kind of learned a little bit more and and the context of the time that it's in but at the time that wasn't that was just contemporary entertainment And I think, you know, music and and, and going back to people like David Bowie, they were sort of so far ahead of the curve in, and you mentioned this sort of teaching and learning their audience, you know, teaching their audience and having their audience learn from their examples, whether it's, you know, talking about their favourite books or whether it's having, uh, you know, a a, a very kind of mixed inclusive band, you know, um, which I think was probably not just a choice from a From a, um, a kind of socially conscious way, but also a choice of having great musicians with different uh, stylistic expressions, you know having you know George Murray and Dennis Davis, amazing rhythm section with slicky and and with El Slick playing on station to station, so you get this kind of funk versus you know kind of a rhythm and blues guitar with that kind of kraut rock element in there as well It's like you know and I think that was what was great about somebody like Bowie. They did. They, they did that, and their audience sort of learned from it.
0: Yes, this you know, is true. Very, yeah. But they, it's kind of interesting because you sort of talk about sort of various things that you look look at now, and '80s kind of rock videos are really embarrassing because they're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're terrible. But then on that Bowie front, you know, the other day I did think, oh my God, young Americans, someone could say that's cultural appropriation with you know of the course, whole yeah, yeah. yeah. and. Yeah. Uh,
1: and that's another in, it, one. Sure, yeah, I mean, he he did call it Plastic Soul, so it was almost like he was kind of, I guess, owning up to that, that it wasn't, you know, it was a it, it sort of, in a sense, owning up to the appropriation. Um, you know, I mean, even even things like, you know, I look at, you know, China Girl, for example, uh, the, the the sort of, I mean, I, I don't like the Bowie version, actually. I much prefer the Iggy version. But yes. the Bowie version has that kind of twee, you know, sort of like Asian, cod Asian guitar, um, uh, you know, riff in it, which is, or keyboard riff, whatever it is, you know, and then a video with, you know, the the the, the sort of um, uh, objectified girl and the whole thing. I mean, yes. it, is, it, it's, it, it, it is very much of its time. Um, But, you know, you mentioned Bronski Beat. Bronski Beat, Small Town Boy, is a great example of a video that I think really does stand the test of time uh, from the 80s because it's telling a story that you hadn't really seen in mainstream culture and certainly not in pop culture in an overt way. And and I thought that was actually very... I, I thought that was a great song and very interesting video too.
0: Yes, absolutely. I yeah. mean, and, and sort of with what the th- what was kind of amazing with Bowie was his ability to sort of be so fascinated, you know, with that whole New York scene with Klaus Nomi and um, yeah, Joey yeah. Aria, which was kind of, you know, that whole, you know, fascination that had started with people like Andy Warhol and it continued yeah. through to the sort of slight, I suppose, that, that kind of, I suppose, with the New York kind of punk scene that I'd sort of, you know, sort of realised is that, you know, talking to people like um, the great—is it Christian Hoffman who was in the Mumps—and and also oh, yeah. I did an interview with Joey Arias as well. Was that yeah. um, you know, punk in in America and uh, New York, there was a much more kind of it was much more gay, wasn't it? It was a much yeah. more kind of you know. Whereas yeah, yeah. the UK scene, you know, was it suddenly became very blokey. And it was like oh, it you know, Yeah, it, was it, a, sh- it was a Sham 69 and it was a bit shouty. Yeah. Whereas you know and and you know you had Robert Mapplethorpe and you had you know Andy Warhol and then you had that whole Lee Blackchilders with you know the Rockettes and Smutty yeah. Smith and people like Levi Dexter so it's kind yeah. of it was a much more kind of like Blimey it's it's there's not one form of punk here is there you have Johnny Thunders but then you have everything else going on as well and yeah and you had this kind of scene like you know Max's Kansas City, CBGB's and then you had the Mud Club and then you had you know, is um, Anna Magnuson with her? Yeah, of, Anna Magnusson, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. was, you know, an amazing kind of group of really different people. It, it sure. sort of got quickly out of just being like, you know who's better sex pistols or the clash you know it's like you know it was like my god this this scene is quite bonkers actually isn't it you know and they're such a sort of quite kind of musically extreme bunch of people as well which was kind of fascinating so as you were studying through your um, 80s with a grant hurrah for grants um
1: (laughs) pre-education i mean you've got to like you've got to like bow down to that it's Today, the world of education is very, very different. So I feel incredibly privileged to have had a free education and, you know, and a grant to to kind of live on in in London. And, you know, I mean, you could get by as well in those days. It was like, you know, more than get by. I mean, you could go out and have a great time. And Yes.
0: And you could, I think, in in the 80s, you could even sign on the doll in the summer. In the summer, yeah. Yeah. And and possibly Christmas and Easter. It was just like, and and some people got housing benefit and, And it was just like, you know, you just had that whole three years of kind of um, no debt, no worries, but lots of exciting adventures, really, which was oh, which was fascinating. So did you with were you doing fine art at St.
1: Martin's or was it fashion? I studied fashion. Um, I, I was I mean, it was kind of interesting because I basically on the train, I bought Vogue magazine in the in the uh, in the railway station in Doncaster and I read it. From cover to cover on the way down for my interview, and 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 then I kind of regurgitated the names that I saw because the, the the interviewers asked me, so you know which designers inspire you, and I I was kind of um, mispronouncing you know Johnny Versace and Issy Miak and all you know really badly I'm sure, um and but I kind of got in you know it worked I mean I kind of blagged my way I had I think I had a pretty decent portfolio my portfolio was pretty decent. And uh, and I really knew what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I was kind of interested not in actually Paris fashion or Milan fashion or whatever. I was interested in, in British street fashion. That was what, you know, was turning me on. It was, you know, Vivian Westwood, Malcolm McLaren, and everything in the King's Road and everything in in Covent Garden, PX and you know, all the new romantic stuff and all of that. And 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 I just had a you know white laser focused point of view of what I wanted to do. And I think that's what got me in more than anything else. Yes, Is that, you know, a very clear, you know, what, what I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, and you know, it was sort of, I, I guess it was a fascinating time. I learned so much more from my peers because I I, I skipped foundations. So all the kids I was in school with were at least one or two years older than me, some more. And they were coming from Liverpool and Manchester and, you know, London and so on. And they just, they were just so much more sophisticated, and knew so much more about life, you know, so... I learned probably as much, if not more, from them as I did from my teachers, um, you know, and it was kind of like very competitive as well, so you, you had to keep up. Yes, <laughs> and also I guess
0: the 80s, it was that massive explosion of kind of hedonistic kind of, yes, it was the Blitz kids, wasn't it really, in yeah. London, and yeah. and sort of the rise of Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, yeah. and um, yes, and and sort of make it big. Wham. It was, it was kind of amazing. So did you, did you feel kind of politically kind of torn at that point, you know, with sort of, you know, what the hell, let's go for, for the big dream, Thatcher's dream. Or did you feel a bit like, you know, you know, sort of an awkwardness sometimes with, with that hedonism?
1: I didn't feel an awkwardness with a hedonism, but coming from, you know, the North of England, the, the sort of the, the minor strikes and the the, the, the uh, pressure that the Thatcher government put on the communities in, in the north of England to kind of break the unions, that was very sort of front and centre. I mean, I, I, I didn't have any affinity at all with Margaret Thatcher, with, with her government. Um, but at the time, the, the left were, they hadn't really coalesced. I mean, it was kind of hard, you know, but things like Red Wedge happened and um it was a great endeavor um but it it was sort of i guess getting together around a political party that really didn't have a appear to have a strong figurehead or appear to have a, a convincing enough argument to dislodge the the sort of um uh idea that thatcher was putting forward which was anybody can make it of course that's not true um, it 's a great lie that 's kind of sold in the u s as well anybody can be president you know well that 's no they can 't actually and and not everybody can have the same opportunity it's, it, it, it actually is is a lie that I think has, the, 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 the curtain 's been pulled back on it within the last probably decade um, you know that that, that american dream isn 't isn 't a reality in any way. Um, it may have been more possible in the 50s and 60s, possibly in the, in the 50s, I don't know. But, you know, from the 70s onwards, that, that idea, I, I just don't think was a reality. Um, but I think, you know, being in London during that time, what, what was great was it empowered young people to take that punk ethos, to say, OK, I don't need to study this and get the technique perfect. Before I go out and try to do it, I can just kind of have a go. So if I'm a graphic designer and I'm my letter set's a bit wobbly, as long as I make it interesting and I, I I'm, you know, I'm, I do something original or with some originality, then I can actually get my, you know, my ideas out there and maybe get work and support myself and 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 you know make my way from that. And I think that was one of the things that that was positive about that time. But it was kind of perverted in a way into the kind of Thatcher ideology, um, you know, which I think was really divisive. I mean, it was like North against South. It was, you know, rich against poor. It was really playing up that the, the class system that existed in the UK. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when in the, it, you know, I, when I moved to London, I had a mild Yorkshire accent and I was like mercilessly taking the piss out of for, for the first year in <laughs> London, you know, every every time I opened my mouth, somebody would be like and it would be somebody from you know, another region in England, not necessarily a Londoner, but, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, you hick, go back to Doncaster. Wow.
0: So yes. It kind
1: of that as well.
0: It's strange, isn't it, actually? Yeah. But then, you know, it's kind of interesting, those kind of like speeches, because obviously the kind of great thing of like levelling up has become sort of the latest thing that people are not right. quite sure what it means, but it does sound great. So, you know, let's let's sell the dream on that. So it's sort of... <laughs> It always kind of works in a weird way you know if you kind of sound convincing enough those sound bites you know build back better or whatever they call sure. it um yeah. it does kind of happen but then with your with your sort of period in the 80s you were still keen to to do music weren't you because you then sort of put yeah. together another kind of musical combo because because what i found with the sort of the 80s kind of world there was kind of the The kind of indie kids who at that time you know didn't go to university you know because being unemployed wasn't that hard a deal and it didn't have the stigma that it probably did later and then it was like the Job Seekers Alliance and the Enterprise Alliance schemes and there was this kind of you could have one year doing anything as long as you had £1,000 in the bank account so there was a lot of those kind of indie bands that obviously John Peel loved who were formed during that period like Bogshed and Stump and Big Flame and you know that gave people that one year of sort of at least kind of experiment and then having a go because there was not much else to do. And then, you know, during that period, you know, you had the gatekeepers, you know, there was the John Peel show, which was great, oh. Janice Long, Kid Jensen, but John Peel was fantastic. And then you had three weekly music papers, huge yeah. circulations. And again, that sort of, was very focused in those publications and record mirror and then every city and town in the uk would have a live venue an alternative night so again you know and as you realize uk is so tiny compared to america that you could get a transit pan and do a tour of like five cities so it did sort of help create quite a creative you know I don't know, um, I suppose, bass, really, sure. which I think we're still sort of feeling today with people, I don't know, like Stuart Lee still doing, you know, right. like all those people back then who started are now in positions of, of kind of influence and a certain amount of power. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I don't know something like that anyway. But <laughs> yes, so music was still kind of in, in your sort of, so you didn't want to think, forget that, it's going to be fashion and nothing.
1: Well, I, I so whilst I was still in Doncaster, um, after punk, I started a, a kind of fledgling electronic project with a with a friend of mine, and it was me on guitar, him on bass. He had a synthesizer, a synthesizer and I had I put all my effects pedals in one of my mum's uh, roller trays from her hairdressing shop. So actually, stupidly, they were elevated. And I kind of drew the Korg logo on the front of the, to make it look like a synthesizer, which is really stupid because when you're playing a guitar, the idea of a pedal is you operate it with your feet and you can still play the guitar. So I had the pedals in front of me and I had to press the buttons. I had to stop playing the guitar, which was really dopey. But we got a gig and um, we had a slideshow as well, as you know, you had to kind of have the human humanly style slideshow. Yes. <laughs> and, and so we we got this gig and it was in a, a place called First Aid, which was the basement of a church in the center of Doncaster. And we played the show. We were terrible, I'm sure, uh, all dressed in black with like heavy makeup and everything. Somebody came up to us after the show and said, my name's Pete Scott and I write for Sounds. (laughs) And I'm gonna gonna write a review of the show. And I was like, oh great, you know, like, oh, okay, that happens all the time. You know, this was our (laughs) first gig. And so he said, I can't promise that the review is gonna be good. And I was like, well, okay, I don't care. And he said, but can you give me your phone number so I can, like, you know, get a quote from you later? And so I gave him my phone number. And um, sure enough, he wrote a review. He didn't call me, but he wrote a review. And it came out a few weeks later in Sounds. And it said, we sounded like a cross between Bauhaus, Cabaret Voltaire, and a vacuum cleaner. And our music was migraine-inducing. And I thought brilliant you know like <laughs> it's a review in sounds you know? oh absolutely and, this and, is great um, and then a, a few a guy who a guy who came to that show approached us afterwards and he said my name's Nick and I've got a drum machine and I'd love to join your band and um we said okay you know we're, we're, we're rehearsing it in the garage in my mum dad's house come along next Tuesday night which he did and he told me later he went out and bought a drum machine the next day he didn't actually have one he went out and bought one. <laughs> And so he joined as the drum machine operator. And a few months later, we kind of transformed into a bit more of a sort of new romantic-y outfit. But we played our second gig, and the guy came and reviewed it again. So our first gig and our second gig were reviewed in Sounds. He gave us a terrible review the second time because he hated new romantics. But it it sort of, for me, demystified things because it made it feel like, oh, wow, this is possible. Like you can get in, you know, it's either The Enemy, The Melody Maker, maybe Record and Mirror or Sounds, you know, and Sounds and The Enemy were sort of, for me, the two big ones. Yes. And, you know, you can get reviewed and it's, it's easy. I mean, it kind of, you know, delusionally, as a sort of 16 year old, because the, these first gigs were in like 1980, end of 1980, beginning of 1981. So I was still, you know, 16. I mean, I was still really young. And and so later when I got to London, I still had that attitude of like, oh, it's easy, you just go and do it. You know, yes. and like I, I, and I guess naively I still think in that way. You know, <laughs> nice. you know just, oh, just go and do it. <laughs> so was that was that water sport or was that No, that was later. Yeah, that was later. Um, so I, I I moved to London. Obviously, the, the, the Wonder Stories band didn't because they were, you know, Nick was a butcher and Dennis was working in the steelworks in Scunthorpe. And so they weren't going to move, you know, to London. So I moved to London to go to college and I, I, I got a porter studio. And um, I was uh, kind of making really terrible demos at home. And then um, this woman came into college and she was researching a book about T-shirts. And so she, she was introduced to me by my teacher. And she said, you know, oh, the, the teacher said to her, oh, this kid writes music. And she said, well, why don't you come over to our house for dinner? My husband manages musicians. And I was like, oh, okay. And I went over and it, it was Falcon Stewart He managed Adam and the Ants, X-Ray Specs, Amazulu, Classics Nouveau. I mean, it's like, talk about lucky. You
0: know? Wow. That's and, and amazing. So, I mean, and it, Adam, Adam and the great... Marco Peroni, you know. Oh, yeah, a,
1: Marco. I love Marco.
0: Marco with his amazing collection of shoes <laughs> and um, guitars. Yes, my God. So that's, I mean, that's, that's quite bizarre, isn't it? Having that yeah. amount of kind of doorways opening, just, you know, like a Star Trek film. Blimey, that's, that's extraordinary. And did, and did you manage, were you a bit of a blagger in those days or was it just luck?
1: It was, it, I've become a blagger. But it's, it was in those days, it was like because I, I, was, I was very shy. I mean, I was like, you know, I, I would go, I would get on the bus from Kentish Town every day and go into, the, into St. Martin's and Charing Cross Road in full makeup with stacked shoes and orange hair and the whole thing. But I was actually, that was kind of an outward way of, you know, dealing with the world, I guess. I mean, it was kind right. of like putting on a show. Um, and, uh, but I was actually quite shy and I didn't really have the, the the confidence to to actually blag i mean i think that that confidence develops over time you know and so today i will say yes and then i'll figure it figure out how to do it later Yes. Um, you know but I, I i guess with age now i do i do um i moderate my yeses a little bit more than i <laughs> than i did when i was in my my 20s and 30s um, well absolutely
0: i did there was an interview i did with um oh he's the guy Duncan Hannah, who was kind of one of these kind of, he was on the scene in New York in that sort of yeah. period, and um, and he said he just got everywhere because he was so good looking that people just all wanted to shag him, really. So, men and women. So you know, it was kind of part of his story, his story, in his New York world. So it was yeah. kind of yes, whatever works. That, whatever <laughs> works. It just kind of you know. Then he then he bizarrely became a painter as well, but and wrote a yes, he he did this kind of book which was all his diaries he wrote in the seventies, which were that interest, and they they published them. So then with with the sort of the, the kind of uh, ability to sort of meet the manager of um, Adamant as well as um, all those other bands, X-Ray Specs, did you then sort of form your next musical, you know, combo? Well,
1: I had a, a, a friend of my girlfriend who was a guitar player and he was incredibly good looking guy. I mean, he was like, I mean, it became a fashion model, but he was kind of studying geography at North London Poly. And he turned around, came up came up to our flat in Kentish Town in an anorak and flares. He was like, you know, but it's kind of like one of those, almost like, you know, the librarian take off their glasses. And yes. it's like, oh, it's Jones. And, you know, so my friend Bill took off his Parker, and suddenly was like, wow, this guy looks like Nick Kamen. He's very handsome. And he got out a pre-1962 cbs fender strat which he'd found in a cupboard in his house that he was living in and and started playing and he was really good <laughs> so it was like okay you're in <laughs> so it was kind of me with synthesizers and a drum machine um my friend on guitar and then you know a couple of other people got involved um and then falcon the the, the guy that managed that amount was named falcon stewart is really wonderful guy very uh, intuitive manager he got us some studio time at EMI in Manchester Square. They had a a demo studio in their basement, which was actually like sixteen track very very nice studio and so we went in there, we did a bunch of demos, and then he got us more studio time with MCA. Um, at uh, Martin Turner from Wishbone Ash uh, had had a home studio in Putney, which was again like a nice 24-track studio in in one of the rooms in his house. And we went over there and we did these tracks that became Water Sport and you know the the the, the reverse side of that. Falcon put them together as a 12-inch single because he just launched his own record label and put them out. And it you know got re- reviewed in Smash Hits and the NM- Dylan Jones reviewed it in The Enemy. Um, you know it was like I mean it was. <laughs> You know, it's, uh, played at the ID fifth anniversary party and did a whole bunch of gigs and you know it was great. It was really because
0: was, was awesome. Records was that what Polystarion yeah. did a solo album and also did, Mark yeah. did a. Um, did he did he do a kind of a number with um, the woman from the Mekons on um, Awesome Records? This house is a house of trouble.
1: Maybe I mean the the other artists I know Danielle dax um, oh God, Daniel uh, was dax. was was kind of like falcon 's protege, and she did a couple of albums with awesome um, and uh, you know I was, I was I worked with falcon for a couple of years like i, I from sort of eighty four till probably about eighty seven yes. and, um, and we did we did that and then we did more recordings I did a Janice long session and and a bunch of other stuff too and then we just sort of drifted our separate ways because i graduated from college and sort of started really focusing on fashion to go back to your question earlier i just thought fashion i mean it's not an easy game but i thought it was more potentially a career uh than music you know i just saw how difficult music was i mean it, you know it's it, it's um uh it, it was a there wasn't the the way to get music out into the world that there is today, obviously with, you know, digital platforms and so on, you can actually distribute music yourself and there's upsides and downsides to that, but that wasn't really the case, you know, in in the eighties. I mean, there was a cassette underground, which is fantastic. Um, But I wasn't really part of that scene. So I didn't really understand that sort of distribution network. And um, I just thought, you know, well, fashion, I can kind of, you know, I can make clothes, I can make them on my, kitchen table with my sewing machine, you know, and I can take them to shops and sell them. Yes. And, and that's what I did initially. Um, but with music, it was kind of like, you know, unless you had a deal um, with one of the majors, where was it going to go? You know, so I was, I, I, I love music, but I didn't really see it being the thing that I did for a living.
0: No, um, that's... That's more of a, yeah, well, I sort of realise, I haven't done this show for quite a few years now, that most bands do have the five-year narrative, you know. Yeah. If they get to that next stage, you know, the the first album, things are kind of nice, good. But the second album, for most bands, you know, that's pretty well nearly it. And the third album is definitely the the end, really, because A, they've grown to hate each other, and B, (laughs) they've also made no money. And so they're still in absolute poverty. And so it's only the few bands that are vaguely making any income at all and also what I also found was that you know and I was the same I realized that you know that wave of 16 18 year olds come along and they want their kind of sound don't they and then the next wave come along and they want their sound they don't want someone five years who's been around they want to discover that next artist so oh. when the smiths came along it was like oh my god that might they're my band yeah but they're like 87 you know i though i love the smiths i sort of realized it was like even i was thinking i'm not quite so bothered about the next album and then they break up and then you think well fair enough and then yeah. you look back and you think yeah five years is pretty good really and then you had the ecstasy scene that came in oh. so all those indie bands i quite liked, like the Wolfhounds and yeah yeah no and you know, the Triffids and the Go-Betweens, they all started to feel a little bit tired as the as the 80s progressed. And then you got the next scene, and that was kind of those four AD bands like, you know, the Pixies and Throne Muses, and then you had the grunge scene and then Britpop. So you kind of, as, as a recording artist, it's horrendous, really, isn't it? Because you're thinking... Right. Jesus, no one wants my work. You know, it's like <laughs> we've all kind of moved. No, we haven't completely. But unless you're David Bowie, it's going to be difficult. But then, you know, when I've looked at his career, his 60s work is like, blimey, David, what were you doing? And then 70s, <laughs> like, wow, that's amazing. Well, in the 60s, you just think you were recording that while, you know, Jimi Hendrix, The Dolls, Jefferson Airplane, The Beatles, The Kinks, The Who, The Grateful Dead, you know, you, all the and David was coming longer. Do you want to hear this? It's like... Hmm. Interesting, David. <laughs> I'm not quite sure, really. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You're not going to get, yeah, it's not quite on the scene, is it, really? You know, it wasn't like the summer of love. But then, you know, Angie Bowie and Tony DeFreeze certainly helped him on his way. And then the 70s was amazing. Then the 80s, a bit tricky. Then the 90s, a mm, bit tricky. But then he gets it a bit more together, doesn't he? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of interesting in, in that world. So during the 90s for you, then, was it very much you were just then focused 100% on Fashion and um, yeah. well, I
1: was I, I was still so I I, I stayed in London until ninety three, and then I decided. And this was kind of like in that lull just before brick pop started to really happen. Suede were happening, um, and and you know people like Paul were around, and obviously um, um, Blur were around too. But there was kind of a bit of a lull post acid house, and so I I decided I was going to come and live in New York for a couple of years, and I thought it would just be good life experience. So I came here. Um, you know, and 28 years later, I'm still here. Um, but I came here and I actually got back into playing music. And when I was here, I started recording again here. And I did a, I did a track and a music video with, there's a, a sort of um, a very, very well-known kind of downtown club personality called Amanda Lepore, who um, is uh, um, a trans person who uh, has been sort of featured in, in uh, um, many sort of pop cultural moments. She's kind of like, she's a contemporary of Joey, Joey Arias, but um, uh, is sort of like very, very well known in New York. So I worked with Amanda and we made this kind of futuristic music video. And uh, I did a whole bunch more recording, but it was sort of more in that, you know, d- sort of dance music, electronic dance music vein. Um, but I didn't really do anything with it. I did one CD and put it out myself. Um, but I was really focused on my own fashion label because that was kind of all-consuming for many years. Mm. And, um, you know, and, and, and probably from, like, 99 until about 2005, 2006, that was really the main thing that I was doing. You know, it was, like, day in, day out, seven days a week. Um, yeah, and it wasn't until kind of I met Slick, I met Earl Slick, um, that I sort of started to think about doing something as a band again, you know, and, and sort of a little bit more as a musical endeavour. And, and that was just, again, a sort of chance meeting through Myspace, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> weirdly. Yes. Um, but um, I'd done clothes for the Pistols when they toured America. And I knew Glenn, I'd, I'd gotten to know Glenn pretty well. Uh, and I knew, I was, I knew, I knew um, Clem Burke from Blondie also uh, sort of, you know, through kind of the fashion thing more than anything else. And so we kind of came together as this initial version of Slinky Vagabond. And uh, we did a whole bunch of recording. We did a whole bunch of gigs. We did, you know, the Jerry Ramon uh, fundraiser that happens yearly in New York. And we play with the dolls and played with a whole bunch of other people. And it was great. I mean, it was, it was uh, kind of sort of dream, you know, for, for the kid from Doncaster, it was kind of a dream come true to be playing with one of the pistols somebody from bowie's band and you know the iconic drummer from blondie and they're really nice guys as well it's kind of very easy an easy situation um yeah so it was that was great yes
0: and did you and did you work with david um during
1: the yeah yeah we i so i worked with i worked with david we did so it was really weird when i was working with the band david is very secretive. <laughs> and so um, I couldn't tell anyone that I was doing it. And I was actually working with Slick on the music project, but I was working with David on the fashion project at the same time. And I couldn't tell Slick. I told David I was working with, with Slicky on music, but I didn't, uh, you know, do the, do the reverse, tell Slicky I was working with David. And it wasn't until we were closer to launching the fashion collection. And I kind of worked with David off and on for about nine months. Um, you know, so it was kind of, it was funny, it was sort of a really weird, I felt bad because I was kind of having to be, I, I sort of knew what was going on in the Bowie camp, mm. and Slick at that point was, you know, David had stopped touring, so he wasn't, the band weren't getting any work, and, you know, it was kind of like, oh, you know, David's not doing any shows, why isn't he doing any shows, and I kind of knew, well, I'm working with him on this fashion thing, but I don't want to say anything, you know, in case I kind of let the cat out of the bag.
0: Well, yes, absolutely. Funny because <laughs> it was kind of, because I went to see the, I went to see him in Glaston, the Glastonbury Festival, but I also saw him on the reality tour and then it was when sure. he had his kind of heart attack, wasn't it, in sort of yeah. 2004, then yeah, he yeah. completely disappears yeah. and that was the first time in my life that suddenly David wasn't there, which was yeah. kind of really strange because he suddenly wasn't appearing, promoting an album, he wasn't sort of suddenly, you know, in the papers, he, he completely went. So how did he get in touch with you?
1: he didn't get in touch with me. I got in touch with uh, Bill Zizblatt, who uh, w- is still the business manager for the estate. Um, and I had contacted them when uh, the reality tour was going on because I kind of wanted to get into doing merchandise, um, uh, you know, T-shirts and totes and all that sort of stuff for tours. And so I reached out to Bill and Bill said, well, you know, they're, they're doing the reality tour. Um, let's reconvene when they're finished and then maybe for the next tour, we can talk about it. And then, of course, David had health issues and it wasn't going to happen again. So I, in the meantime, I'd gotten a deal for my fashion collection with Target, which is a big American retailer. And I, I'd, I figured that that was financially more worthwhile for David to get involved with than it would have been for me selling my own collection at, you know, nice stores. I mean, Harvey Nichols and Bergdorf and people like that. But it was kind of small potatoes compared to Target, which is like 12 yes. stores. So I went back to Bill and I said, you know, I'm doing uh, this, this collection, you know, and, and Target are distributing it. Do you think David might be interested to talk about it? And, and Bill said, why don't you come up to, he was on 57th Street, he said, why don't you come uptown and meet David and talk about it? And I just thought, oh, okay. But in after the fact, I realised he never did stuff like that. I mean, he never just like met with people on you know on spec of like, oh, I've got an idea, you know. Um, but it was so it was such an interesting meeting because he came. I mean, I kind of feel like he came to the meeting as David Jones because he was dressed in very nondescript clothes and yes. very low key and very jo- jokey blokey kind of thing, you know. Like he, he wasn't. Um, I mean, very famous people have. A great knack of putting someone who is obviously a fan at ease by demystifying the situation a little bit. And that's what David did sort of straight away. I realized afterwards that's kind of what he did because he made me sit at the head of the table in the boardroom. Oh, you go and sit at the head of the table. You're leading this. You know, it wasn't like, um, you know, I'm David Bowie kind of thing. It was a, a very different vibe. And I really appreciated that, you know. And and he kind of joked around with me about Yorkshire and stuff like that. And so it was, it was great. It was a very, uh, uh, very, very sort of auspicious meeting for me. Um, And he said, you know, tentatively yes to the project. And then we kind of started planning it. And um, we had regular meetings for about nine months. And he was very clear; he didn't want to be identified as a fashion designer. It was just like he would be the inspiration, and I would design the product. and You know, it was a a very, um, it's kind of like they say don't meet your heroes, but in that case, it was a brilliant meeting of a hero because he was everything you would want him to be, which was sort of not David Bowie. He was sort of like very like kind of uh, a, a regular guy without any pretensions. Um, but still with very intuitive and smart and yes
0: and it's also generous, kind of yeah. the great mysterious period where no one had heard of him so it must have been yeah. even weirder so did you have to sign a I mustn't mention yeah yeah
1: yeah and yeah yeah the whole thing yeah yeah God, that was
0: weird. well the other strange thing because during that period which was probably a few years later our neighbor a few doors down said oh my son's working with David Bowie and it was like yeah but no one's heard of him since 2004 and it was like so what does your son do He goes, oh he works for lou louis vuitton so he's kind of gone he's kind of found, you know david's kind of going to be working you know doing some stuff with louis vuitton and so yeah. i went when i met the son i, I was like mm, i'm still not sure and then he said yeah we went to new york it was nice and then it was all going well at the mid dinner party and then then he said i got out my phone and this assistant of his just Coco just jumped across the table almost and like thought I was going to take a picture and nearly knocked the camera you know this this kind of pad out of my hand uh-huh. thought, oh god yes you definitely <laughs> you know you 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 definitely did work with doing that because you yeah, could have I, made that story up really the famous I'm saying
1: I'm saying nothing
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes it's it's there you go so that was the Louis Vuitton moment with David Bowie. Anyway, so um, so that's good. But 2007 is also when the band gets together. So with this, yeah. were you based in New York, rehearsing in New York as as a sort of, a, a, was it a four-piece at this stage?
1: Yeah, it was a four-piece. And um, we recorded upstate in a, in a studio in Rhinebeck, which is called Clubhouse, which is a great studio, and it's residential, it's an old farmhouse. So you go up and stay there. And uh, we recorded sort of an album's worth, like 12, 12 songs, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we rehearsed. So this is actually interesting. We rehearsed at SIR in Brooklyn, and in in uh, for one of the shows, which was the Joe Ramon birthday bash. And in the next room was Philip Glass, <laughs> which was very bizarre. And 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 Clem knows Philip, so Philip came in and said, "Oh, come and have a listen." <laughs> so that was kind of like another one of those weird moments where. Is this really happening?
0: <laughs> so did you, did you feel, you know, like with these, you know, guys, they've got one hell of a CV, haven't they? Did yeah. you, did you feel like, cause you know, at this stage in life, you know, we're a bit, you know, a bit older. So one starts to get a bit more self-conscious. You're thinking, you know, were you the leader of the, were you the person who was holding the band together?
1: Well, it, it sort of just came together because, Slicky and I, he said to me, if you you want to record some of your songs, let's do it. You know, and I've got this, I work with a studio upstate. I'm sure we can go and use that for a few days. We need a bass player and a drummer. And I said, well, I can ask Glenn and I can ask Clem. And they both said yes. And they both got on planes and flew to New York, one from LA, one from London. And so, you know, within a couple of weeks, we were in the studio, but we hadn't decided to be a band. Yes. Um, and uh, Glenn went back to London and he got a call from the Jerry Ramon people because he played at that event the year before. And they said, do you want to do the show again? And he said, yeah, and I've got this new thing that I'm working on. Maybe we could do it with that. And so then he came back to me and said, we need a name. And we you know, threw a bunch of names in the hat. Slinky Vagabond was one of the names. I'd used it before for other, other projects, but that was one of the names that we kind of landed on. And so that's when we sort of became a band. But initially my idea was we do, you know, a couple of songs where I sing, maybe we we can do, you know, a Rich Kids cover and Pretty Vacant or whatever, and Glenn sings. And, you know, we sort of do it in that way, but Glenn didn't want to front it in any way. He just wanted to be part of the band. Yes. Um, And, uh, you know, I think he just was enjoying being in a band again, Um, uh, you know, because he'd kind of been a free agent for a while and had his own thing. Um, but yeah, it just sort of organically came together. And then we got offered a bunch of other gigs, uh, in, in New York and we did those. And then the Pistols decided to reform for the anniversary of Nevermind the Bollocks. Blondie started touring in earnest again. They started doing festivals, but also actually doing tours in the U.S. And, um, and, and so it kind of just sort of drifted apart. Um, but I mean, I speak to Glenn, I stay with Glenn whenever I go to London and I speak to him all the time. I was speaking to Clem last week because he's going to play on some of the new stuff that we're doing um, with the the version of Slinky Vagabond now, and I see. I, I I was in a studio in Brooklyn with Slicky about six months ago, visiting him there. So I see them all the time, you know. Yes, um, but we're we're sort of all doing different stuff, you know. And and uh, Glenn's you know kind of become a bit of a national treasure, I think, in the UK, and he's always doing his solo shows and you know going out with people. On the road and stuff, so you know, good more power to him. I think it's great. Yes, I know. Well, um, Slicky should have been
0: in Norwich, I think, last month, but then it all got because yeah. he's got some it's got Lyme disease. Yeah, God, not yeah. Oh God, that's horrendous. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, God. I know a few people who've had that. Jesus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then the old hippies still living in you know like primitive dwellings in the countryside. I don't know. How well, Slick,
1: he... Slick lives in, in a kind of in the forest. Oh, yeah. okay. All makes so, uh, sense, yes. Uh, yeah. So, look,
0: what was like, so, when did you start putting this new album together, which is. Um, you know has just come out because obviously you know the last 18 months has been tricky what did you what how did you cope with the last 18 months kind of um creatively because suddenly it was this oh there might be something happening who cares we've Mm. heard it before and then it's like oh my god it's really has been horrendous and being in new york and and speaking to a lot of people who in new york they're all sort of like kind of it's sort of crazy how did you Mm. manage to sort of deal with it in in a city that has such a history but then has changed so radically
1: it has changed radically i mean and to you know just to quickly go back to what you were saying about club 57 and the mug club and that era that was a very different new york unfortunately the creative class uh in many ways can't exist in new york anymore because it's just the real estate has become so expensive and the city's changed i mean it's you know Young, younger people, young people are, are are in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. You know, they're not really working in the city anymore. Um, Manhattan is not kind of cool, really. I mean, it's you know, if if I was 21, I wouldn't want to be in Manhattan. I wouldn't want to be in Bushwick or you know, Greenpoint or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, coping with COVID, it was very strange. Uh, you know, I thought it was going to be all over in a couple of weeks. Yes,
0: three weeks.
1: <laughs> I, I, I thought, you know, I, 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 was, I went to my gym. They said, we're going to close because of the pandemic. And uh, do you want to put your membership on hold? And I said, yeah. And they said, how long for? And I said, two weeks. And they said, well, you have to do a month at a minimum. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do a month then. Yes. You know, and then literally almost two years later, it's, uh, you know, it's, we're still, it's still, you know, the pebble went into the middle of the pond and the ripples are still coming out so
0: yeah because i did an interview with is it nikki camp who you know one of those club owners who's been running venues in new york since the 80s when it all just was so easy he was saying yeah you 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 just put on a rock night and there'd be a queue of people and you'd sell out whereas I mean, he did start with people like Guns N' Roses, so it was, kind of, it, was going to be, it was going to be an easy gig for quite a few years, wasn't it? <laughs> so, you know, he just said, I'm not sure if it's going to come back. It's all kind of changed. It's, people are into DJs now, and, and they're not even into going out. So I think he was looking at, well, I'm not sure if my career is going to last much longer. So what happened then in your... Did you start writing or thinking of putting this album together last year?
1: no we were so i was uh, i had a teaching gig in florence in italy in which started in 2017 and um uh, i actually i actually went there to do a guest lecture in this this university in florence and i i asked glenn if he would go with me to do you know sort of double acts you know the more common wise punk rock and um he 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 said yes and so uh, we went there, and, and this guy came to the lecture. His name's Fabio Fabri, and he came up to us afterwards. And you know, probably he was wanting to speak to Glenn, but he couldn't get to Glenn, so he got me. And he said, You know, I've got a studio, and would you be interested in coming along and you know, thrashing around with some guitars and you know, having a bit of fun? And I said, Yeah, sure. So that's kind of how it started. Um, I went over to his studio, and then I didn't see him again for a few months, and then you know, he invited me back again. And um, we started recording, you know, we just started like putting things down. And we didn't really think of making a record or anything. I mean, it was just like what I was going to Florence fairly regularly. This is Florence in Italy. Uh, I was going there fairly regularly. And so we would get together. I'd have a song. He'd have a song. I'd have half a song. He'd finish it. I'd put some lyrics on it. And it kind of worked like that. And before we knew it, we had like 16 tracks finished, you know, and they were they were sort of ready to go. And then we thought, well, what do we do with it? And and then the pandemic started. And so we kind of didn't do anything with it. But whilst there was downtime, I, I said to Fabio, well, if we're going to try and do something, let's get some names associated with it that people might actually want to listen to, you know, other than two middle-aged guys that nobody's heard of. Yeah. So I <laughs> I contacted Midge and and who's the first person I contacted Major, And he said, yeah, sure, I'll play. And so I sent him a couple of tracks that I thought had kind of a Rich Kids vibe, and he played on both of them. I was sort of thought, you know, it would be one or the other, and he played on both of them. And then after Midge, it was just like, you know, okay, who else? Who else do we know? Who else do I know that I can contact? And, um, you know, so it sort of went from there, and pretty much everybody on the record are people that I know, except David Torn, who my next door neighbors, Mario McNulty, who who, um, worked with Tony Visconti a lot and Bowie and stuff. And I said to Mario, do you know David? Obviously, David Torn, we probably do. And he said, yeah, sure, I'll put you in touch with him. And I sent David a track and he agreed to play on it. So we can't never mass this, um, you know, sort of dream team of guest players. My dad, and all... dr- it is a dream team, isn't it? And Mario yeah. was the one who did the remixing,
0: didn't he, of David Bo- some of yes. David's stuff yes. in the 80s, which was yes, quite he did fascinating. The,
1: yeah, he did the Never Let Me Down redo sort of redux he took the 80s out of it <laughs> he took the 80s out of it yeah he's called the big drums away and uh yeah yeah so um and mario's you know mario's a good friend he did he did a mix of one of the tracks for us uh one, one of the first ones that we put out was this you know so-called single and um uh yeah and it, it it we we just sort of put the thing together we put it out digitally uh originally and then fabio was you know he's loves the physical product. And he said, look, I really want to do vinyl, I want to do CDs. So we kind of took it off digital and then we pressed vinyl, we pressed CDs, this small number, um, and then we kind of of re-released it again at the beginning of December um, with the vinyl and with uh, the CDs. And they've been distributed by a distributor in Italy so, you know, we're getting them to record, independent record stores and stuff, which is nice. Yes,
0: amazing. Um, and and so with, with most of the recording, was
1: it done sort of separately? And then you just yeah. kind of, you know. Just yeah, Fabio has a, a little home studio, uh, which is great. He gets a great sound. And he recorded, we recorded the guitars, uh, keyboards, um, all of my vocals there. And then Fabio took the, we used electronic drums on the, the first recordings. Then he took those into a studio with the room and redid real drums on everything. And then we sent sound files. Everybody that we work with has, you know, everybody has a home studio of some kind. So we sent them the sound files. They would do their bit at home. You know, um, Midge has his studio in Bath. Uh, David Torn is upstate, you know, so everybody, um, Richard Fortes who plays in Guns N' Roses, he's out in the Midwest and he did his tracks in his home, he's got a very nice home studio, um, you yeah, know, it was done like that, and then Fabio just did the mixing again in Florence, and, um, and we were, you know, all done and ready to go
0: yeah i've met a few people who've done similar things and you know initially they thought god this is going to be so complicated trying to stick it together to make it sound like a band but actually yeah. they've they've managed it and this sound does sound like a very good band actually because what's always kind of you know impressive cuz it doesn't sound like just a load of old men playing you know and you know what i mean it's kind of because because there are quite a lot of albums that come out and you think oh this should be quite good but there isn't that kind of magic but actually listening to this was really enjoyable and i thought thank oh, you this is, this is very kind this of you it's a great song but you probably don't have a kind of a straight rock background that feels a bit i, don't I know.
1: like i like weird yeah. um fabio, fabio is very much a classic rock guy and i like weird so wherever I can bring weird into it, whether it's lyrically or from a melody standpoint, that's, I, 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 my, my philosophy is this, if a track is like driving, you know, it's got, it's got a tempo to it, um, that's sort of interesting. Or if a track is a ballad or a slow track, it has to have a great melody because otherwise it's sort of boring. But if you add weird to both of those equations, at least it's interesting. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> well, I, I completely, season. yeah, because I've been a bit surprised. I can't say
0: who, because, you know, you probably go, oh, that's embarrassing. But, you know, there's been a few people who've brought out their solo albums, and you kind of listen to the first three songs, and you think, this is kind of like a a pub band. You know, it's kind of, you know, there right. isn't that kind of magic. And you think, God, I can't believe they once did an album like that back then, which was so sure. kind of innovative and interesting. And they've come out with something that's slightly so ordinary you know and i i must admit you know i'm just a punter so i can't talk really but i i realized making that create you know the creative process you know and that's one thing that's always fascinated fascinated me is what makes that great lyric or that great melody or that great yeah. that something that makes you hit re- rewind and it is you know it's difficult isn't it you know i mean we saw the beatles film you think oh you know i didn't really know that album and dig a pony i thought what an amazing song I have yeah. no idea what it's about but then yeah. you know know that some of paul's solo stuff isn't great you know right. <laughs> diplomatic but um you know it's kind of like but together you know they make something quite stunning and you must realize that listening to music and trying to make music thinking god this you know this this needs something to, to make it a little bit magic doesn't it really yeah,
1: and it's sort of either you know morrissey and mar <laughs> where it's kind of like this great lyricist and this great sort of more traditional, although I don't think Johnny is really a traditional guitar player, but a traditional musician with a really interesting lyricist, with a very interesting delivery. And it's almost like Amy Winehouse as well, you know, very traditional kind of retro um, uh, sort of musical backdrop, but with these kind of almost like hip hop 21st century lyrics. And that's what makes it the two, the friction between the two is what makes it really interesting. Yes. I'm, not, I'm not in any way comparing what, what, what I do or what we're trying to do with them at all. But what I'm saying is just to sort of try and make it interesting, because, you know, I, I'm not delusional. I'm like in my late 50s and I'm not expecting anybody to rush out and buy this record. We, we made it for ourselves. We made it because we love doing it and we really love music. And this was a chance to work with some great people as well and do something during a time when we were all stuck at home um, and, 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 and as an alternative to crawling the walls, you know. So that was really the motivation behind it. And we're trying to do it as well as we can within those parameters, you know. But um, but let's if we're going to do it, let's try and do something that maybe is interesting. So someone like yourself might hear it and say, oh, actually, yeah, it doesn't sound like a bunch of old men. You know, <laughs> it doesn't sound like a pub band. I mean, that's actually a great... That's right up there with you sound like a cross between Bauhaus cabaret Voltaire, and a vacuum cleaner as a really great um compliment because (laughs) it's that's actually what we're going for is not to sound like a bunch of old men in a in a bar yeah (laughs) and uh, you know and
0: and, uh, as I said you know it's like what makes something kind of magical you know what makes you know people's of people's you know like the the stones work in that kind of the 60s but especially that five years when they had um Mick Taylor on guitar you know right, he'd yeah, taken yeah. over I mean that was just the period where you just thought god that was brilliant and yeah. you know I'm sure Ronnie's okay but there was not the kind of brilliance you know during his kind of period as as Mick Taylor with sure. Exile on Main Street and Let It Bleed and and yeah. all those ones so I realized that creative process and we could see the way the stones were putting stuff together so we put in this album were you also kind of consciously having to sort of rewrite lyrics you know redo the music sort of put in, you know changing arrangements around to sort of make it you know a little bit more special because again you know get back as we sort the, of saw them going through quite pain quite a painful process but you realize that it's getting better every time did yeah. you also have periods like that with this album of thinking no that's not quite right let's just do it another
1: time I think we we um so we recorded 16 songs. The ones that didn't make the cut were purely because we didn't have time to get the real drums recorded on those tracks. And so the edit of the 10 tracks that ended up on the album were actually the ones where we would managed to get the, the full band sound, the, the, the real drummer in place. And mostly, most of them have some kind of guest player um, on, on, the, on the tracks. Tony Bowers, who was in Dorothy Column and Simply Ready, plays bass on most of the tracks. Um, but yeah, it was just those 10 that ended up. And I mean, to me, when I hear it, it does sound like a bit of a jumble. It's like a lot of different things, but I, I quite like that. You know, I sort of quite like, cause I know, I know it, the spirit in which it was done. Um, it doesn't necessarily flow. It wasn't made like an album. It was made like a bunch of songs that we put together into one, one package. And, um, you know, and that haphazardness, I quite like it. But you know, I I, I could see that being a criticism as well. You know, I, um, you know, I mean, I know Fabio says it sounds like a lot of different people recording. You know, but it's
0: interesting because oh, you did a cover of David Bowie's "Boys Keep Swinging." That was the yeah, we did. Yeah, that, that was the track that um it wasn't working, so they all went and changed instruments, didn't right. they? So it kind of yeah. gave it a looser. Yeah. quality and and again it's it probably does sound a lot better for the fact that it is a bit looser and it isn't quite sure. so polished because yeah. it's kind of it's got that essence and I do remember Brian Eno who was doing work with Bowie in the 70s said look let's just experiment because frankly no one's going to die and you think yeah. that is kind of the right spirit because again Personally. if it's too safe you know it does it doesn't have that edge and it's interesting because I you know I thought some of Morrissey's solo work to begin with was quite good but he had a very good band with Alan White and Bos Bora I'm not I'm not quite sure now and Johnny's solo stuff is like it's kind of so ordinary and the vocal is like it hasn't got that something you know there is there is something not quite right but you know, not quite right, but it's all right. But it's not, it doesn't make you hit rewind, does it? And yeah. I think that's the thing that you kind of want to do that surprises you a little bit. And, that, yeah. and I, you know, I do think this, you know, this has been a great, a great listen over the last week, actually. It's been a great joy, actually. So I think you must be chuffed to bits with it. And, yeah. you know, which is good. And does it mean, I mean, playing live, God knows, but do, do you sort of feel that there'll be more sort of musical adventures in the future? Yeah, this?
1: sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to your point earlier, there's a there's a relatively new live music club in Queens called TVI, and um, a lot of young bands, young New York bands are playing there. Um, there are several more established venues in Brooklyn that have reopened. Um, I mean, it's I, I went out last night with a, a bunch of journalists, actually, to a bar in the East Village, and, you know, things are really opened up again here. And these were, these were all music journalists and they were all saying how hungry they are to get back into, you know, kind of that, that that sort of live environment again. And um, I think it, I think it is going to come back. I think, you know, there's a kind of, there's a younger group in New York that are um, of musicians that are really eager to, to get back on stage and, and get back in front of an audience again. So I think, I don't know when it's going to happen. And, and, you know, Hopefully, this, this next wave isn't going to close everything down again completely, because that would be disastrous for venue owners, Yes, um, you know, as well as everyone else that will take the momentum out of, out of what seems to be a little bit of a resurgence. But, you know, I, I think hopefully by sort of next year, by at least the middle of next year, things might be somewhat normalised. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, um, well, I,
0: I do, you know, Well, like you, you know, I kind of looking at, you know, those magazines like Mojo and Uncut, I mean, every band who were kind of like, I'm not sure if I want to tour, I'm not sure if we really get on anymore, I don't know if I want to do this. I mean, everyone just wants to tour now, don't they? Obviously, yeah, I think sure. financially, there's some some need in there. So I think, you know, I can see already in 2022, there's everybody who who's kind of able to just get out there, even on a ship, they're even on cruise ships now doing... Kind of I, saw a <laughs> pump, I saw
1: i saw punk cruise which was like <laughs> i know I was, there's, there's
0: uh, an 80s one there was a, a person i interviewed the other night and he's like he wasn't that into it but he was like you know to be honest it's kind of we gotta do it let's do the yeah. 80s cruise yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know it's 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 no time to say no anymore it's like right a, I've got to go and uh, get out there and get on a cruise, so yeah. off you go, just go for <laughs> it. I know, it's, it's, it is great, and hopefully, I mean, I don't know if you ever get to play any festivals like Glastonbury, but I think, you know, you'd go down so well, wouldn't you, at a festival audience?
1: I think that, that's, that's kind of our route to an audience, is to, if we could pick up some festival shows and some support slots... Um, we were actually offered. Uh, there's a young band in New York called The Ritualists, and they got their new album out, and they offered us some support slots. We we just logistically couldn't do it. It was during this summer, and uh, you know Fabio's in, in in Italy. I'm here, and then we would need to get people together and rehearse and stuff, and it wasn't possible. But that's the route is really. You know, we sort of need to go where there's kind of a built-in audience. Yes. Uh, because my, my uh, like, I don't want to go back to playing to, like, three girlfriends and a dog again. You know, it's like, and then the next gig is two girlfriends and a dog. And then after that, it's <laughs> just, you know. It's like uh, that, I think, is, is um, you know, I'm just, too, I'm kind of too old for that. So I, I if we did things where there is a built-in audience, and we did this before with, with Slicky and Clem and Glenn, you know, we played a, a thing in Central Park with the Scissor Sisters and Patti um, Patty Smith and you know, it was like people were there obviously to see those performers and you know, Slick and Clem and Glenn, obviously. Uh, and I think that 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 model is right for what we're doing is to sort of get get into a festival situation. There's a great festival that's happening actually in in pasadena in the summer next summer called uh, cruel world right a public image of playing it and it's like psychedelic furs and you know if we could get on a bill like that um way 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 down in the bottom of the bill but on a bill like that that would be great because there's a there's a you know a few thousand people there that are here to see psychedelic furs and they might say oh god these guys kind of are in that vibe you you know not bad i'll give them a listen
0: Yes. You well, know. it's always, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if everyone's as nerdy as me, but you know, it's like, God, you look at the lineup and you think, Oh my God, actually these, you know, it's sort they're, they're sort of, you know, they've all got history, haven't they? And yeah. um, a great CV. I know several yeah. um yes it's brilliant so look if you could have just said okay last question if you could have said you know something to a like a say 16 or 18 year old self starting out i know you've had two different careers haven't you which is tricky um but if you could have sort of whispered something with all the decades and and experience you've had and wisdom is there anything you would have just kind of thought yeah that would have been really handy to have had that in my mind or even if it was like yeah keep doing that or go and do something slightly different or focus on something
1: else I would say, if I was talking to my 16-year-old self, I would say, do it sooner. Like, the thing that you thought you should do, do it sooner. Don't wait. Um, there, there, was a, there, there was a band uh, in the early 80s called Fashion that were from uh, uh, Birmingham. And um, they were kind of like sort of electro-funk. They were, uh, they were the pre- precursors of Duran Duran. And their singer quit. And I saw all of them in London one night in a venue, not the singer because he quit, but the other guys in the band. And I wanted to go up to them and say, I'll be a singer. And I didn't because I, I kind of was too nervous, too shy. Or I, wait. I was telling myself, oh, I'll wait. I'll probably see them again, you know. And, and so what I would say to my 16-year-old self is, don't wait. Do it. Yes. <laughs> jump in and do it. Um, because you can, you can try something and fail. And that, I think, is great. It's, if you don't try it at all, that's when you might have regrets, you know. I, and if you try it sooner rather than later, you might fail sooner and then, you know, you just go on and do something else and it, it doesn't matter really.
0: And that, dear listener, is where we're going to leave it because we're just going to waffle on for another 10 minutes. But look, massive thank you to Keenan Dufty, Give me the time for that, talking about his and their new album, Slinky Vagabond uh, album titled King Boy Vandals. It's on vinyl and compact disc. Google away. You'll find uh, more information about how to get it. But do check it out because it's a great album and uh, we've enjoyed it here at the C86 Future Radio HQ. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me for some lovely reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to c 86 Show. And also, all these have been archived. So, um, interviews, that is. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 show. Hundreds, literally. I think we're up to 700. And there's more to put up there. But anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.